let's get started in the book of Hebrews. How are you guys doing with your homework, with your reading? Are you keeping up with it? I think we're going through at a pretty good pace. We got the topics kind of laid out in a, just a really great way so that we're able to just kind of explore. Uh, let's start here. Have you ever wondered why it took so long for God to send Jesus? Like, there's a lot that happens in the Old Testament. Why did it take so long for God to send Jesus? Because really, Jesus is all we need. John Piper had a really great quote. He said, we needed some categories in order to understand all that Jesus is. So all that we have is we have the human experience that we know and our human language. And um, so God tries to explain himself through our human language and gives us categories for what he's doing and why we need him. So we didn't know that we needed Jesus as our high priest until we saw what the function of the high priest was. So we've got all different kinds. Uh, God gave us the law, and it says about the law that um, it defines sin. It shows that the law shows us what sin is. So until we had a cl it clearly defined for us, you know, if we didn't have that spelled out, we might be able to wiggle out of, um, well, I'm really not that sinful, but the law shows us that. The sacrifices are the different ways um, that we relate to God and, the, and things that God does for us, uh, that, that Jesus can be for us. And uh, the priests really showed us that we needed a mediator between God and man. We can't just go to God on your own in, back in the Old Testament because you had this barrier called sin. And so the priest was able to mediate that. So it took a while for um, God to show us our need. But isn't it so gracious that he showed us step by step our need for him and the way he pursues us? So first of all, we're going to just map out our argument that we, um, that we are uh, going to go through. I did not bring, oh no, you know, I have my copy here. I was going to say I didn't bring my actual Bible, but I have my text written out. So here, let's map out this argument that we're looking at. Remember we said the author of Hebrews was um, just really uh, amazing at rhetoric. So making an argument, like a lawyer would strategically make an argument. Some of you are really great at making an argument. Sometimes I tend to get scattered when I'm doing things because uh, my brain doesn't always um, organize them. But if we look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read that to you. This is really where this whole argument about the high priest is, um, is starting. Uh, 3, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful. So last week you talked about Moses, but this is really, chapter 3 is where this argument's going to start. And um, so we're going to keep hitting on this topic of the priest. And then it ends in 8.1. So if we read chapter 8, verse 1, it says, uh, now the point that we are saying, he's wrapping it up, is this, we have such a high priest. So it's a, it's a long argument, and we're going to um, kind of figure out the ins and the outs. But that's how this particular argument about the priest goes. 
there's three different aspects of, of a priest that the, um, that the author is making. So last week you talked about Moses. So Moses was a prophet and a priest. And um, this week we're going to talk about the high priest. Who was, the, who was the first high priest in the Old Testament? Aaron. Aaron, yep. So basically we have Aaron in mind when we're thinking about the high priest. So if Moses was a prophet and a priest, this week we're talking about the high priest. And then we're going to just touch briefly on Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king. Okay, so there's all different categories, and Jesus is all of those. But the author takes the time to explain through um, how Jesus is better than all of those things. Okay, so that's the argument. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to just kind of look at what a high priest does, kind of talk that through just to refresh your memory so that we know what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus being better. We're going to just look at some of the highlights and uh, the themes in the, uh, in the text and some of the, the major themes. We're just going to walk through that. So there's a little bit of just some random thoughts as we talk about some of the key words and key themes. But let's first talk about the high priest. What are some of the things that you think about when you think about the high priest? What did they do? Make sacrifices. Make sacrifices, yep. Weren't they the only ones that could go into the Holy of Holies? Yes. Yep, the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. Yes. Confession. Yep, they were, they were the people that were... Um, they were mediating uh, between God and man. So I'm just going to follow my list here. I'm sure other things are going to pop into my brain that we can uh, go through. But do you remember that this was not God's original plan? Originally, um, it talks about in Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Um, I'll just read it. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Okay, so that was the original plan. And then we saw that in the book of Exodus, uh, where when they had the, um, the Passover, every man over his household was to um, offer uh, the sacrifice. So the, the men, the, it was really the firstborn in the family that were supposed to be the priest. But then we had the golden calf incident. Do you remember that? And so um, things got a little wonky, and there was some rebellion and some unbelief and disobedience. And so God said, OK, it was only which tribe was it that stood up with Moses? The Levites, right. So God said, all right, um, Numbers 8, 19 says, uh, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting, to make atonement for the people. Okay, so Aaron is a Levite, okay? So it's his lineage now that's the high priest, but all of the Levites um, were helpers. Okay, so um, let's see if I can say this correctly. Uh, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. 
because some of the Levites were just helpers. If you think about the sheer number of animals that they had to take care of, some of them were that. Some of them would just wash the parts. And, um, but so all of the priests uh, were Levites. Okay, we're talking Old Testament. In the New Testament, things got... So if you think about uh, the state of the government in Illinois and how things are a little corrupt, that's a little bit how, what happened in the New Testament when you were... Um, when the um, religious rulers got involved and Rome was able to appoint. So we're not talking about New Testament at all. We're just simply talking about how it was set up at the beginning uh, for, the, for the priesthood. All right, so let's see some other things. They would um, teach God's laws because there was very specific ways that they had to um, wash the parts and bring them up to the altar and very specific um, sacrifices for different things. So they would teach that. Uh, they were to protect the sanctuary because they were uh, the only people that could go into the Holy of Holies. And so you wouldn't want someone wandering in there accidentally or an animal to, to get in there. So they were, they were protecting the sanctuary. There's a little picture. Um, in your notes, just so you could get a picture of what you see the tent um, was supposed to, um, the tabernacle was supposed to look like. Um, sometimes they anointed kings, and sometimes they would help uh, in the census of the people. So they were very highly regarded in the community. Um, here's an interesting fact that I learned is, uh, do you remember if you accidentally killed someone in the Old Testament, there was a city of refuge that you could go to. Well, I learned when the high priest died, all those people were set free. I didn't know that. So, um, fun fact. <laughs> Something that happens when the high priest dies. Their main role, though, was on um, the Day of Atonement, which was one day a year, where the priest would offer sacrifices for his own sins to cleanse himself to be right before God and then he would offer um, the sacrifice on behalf of the people so that was did you know that we just we just we, I didn't celebrate it but it just was celebrated at the end of September so um, that is a, that is still a high holy day and I um, I'm not really sure how uh, modern Jews would celebrate that but it's, um, I, I do know that it is a day of fasting. It's a national day of fasting that they do. And it's, um, it's their, so Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. So you think all things new. So up until that time, everybody was um, making things right with their neighbor. There was just different things that they believed uh, were going to happen beginning of Jewish New Year. And then Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. So it's the one day a year where you were completely cleansed from all of your sins. And I had, um, in a class I took one time, I had a gal who was formerly Jewish, and she just, she almost started crying when she talked about how you just felt, you just knew that one day of year that you were completely cleansed. And then she said, but you knew, you just knew it didn't last long. It was so fascinating to just to hear her and just to think, with the blood of Christ, we are cleansed forever. Like, we should just rejoice in that um, once and forever. The people in the Old Testament never had that chance. 
um, just to know continually. So that's how you can come with confidence. So the, um, in the Old Testament, you kind of never really knew if you were, um, if you had accidentally done something that was, that would make you unclean to come before God. So sometimes you just would, uh, you'd have to go through the, the cleansing. You just kind of never knew like what your standing was before God, but you did everything that you could um, to um, d do your purification and then to bring your offering to the priest, and then the priest would offer it, but it was constant. It was constant that you had to continue to do that over and over. Okay, so then um, the last thing that the priest would do on the Day of Atonement is he would um, transfer the sins of the people to the goat, remember, and they would tie um, a ribbon around the goat and send it off, okay? And um, really, they would just make sure that that goat never came back. You did not want that goat with all the sins of the people coming back into the... <laughs> they, so they made sure um, that the goat was not seen again. So um, that is the main role of the high priest, is that he mediates between um, God and man. All right, let's look at our text. And we're just going to pick out some key phrases. Did you guys have any other thoughts, any other fun facts that you know about priests that you wanted to say or um, questions? Okay, we'll move forward. Sometimes you guys have, you know, you learn different things, and, and I've learned different things at different times. And so that's what I love about having different teachers, that you learn different things from different people. Okay, so we're going to start in um, Hebrews 4.14, and we're just going to pick up some of the um, main thoughts in there. It's almost as if the, uh, the author is um, convinced that the people weren't connecting the dots, that they did still have a high priest. So they were thinking, oh, we should go back to Judaism, because that's all they knew, right? Like, it's, a, it's for people that like order, that's a great order. And they weren't kind of connecting, like, well, what does this mean? I don't have to go to the priest. And um, so the author's going to paint a picture using the Old Testament language. So I love that, how you can think through uh, in your imagination how it used to be and, and transfer that to, okay, what do we know now, knowing what's changed? So in, the, in verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14, uh, we first have this picture of the great high priest passing through the heavens. Okay, so the, there's two pictures in there. Brienne talked last week about rest. So if you have a high priest uh, who is, um, if you have, sorry, I've got my words confused there. Uh, if you are at your heavenly rest, salvation, that's a, that's a picture. Did you know that there's five different kinds of rest talked about in the Bible? But uh, as our rest, as salvation, um, that's a picture of um, just eternity and the, the final rest that comes. So you're, if you're talking about the heavens, that could be passing through the heavens, could be a picture of rest, or um, it also could be a picture of the, um, as the priest entered into the Holy of Holies. If you look at your diagram, um, so the priest would have to pass through the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, and then there was a gate, 
and then there was the court of men, and then it was the holy place, which, which would be where the uh, priestly court, I think it's called on your, on your map there. I may have missed a couple things. But um, then into the holy of holies. Like that was, can you imagine that progression on that day? Get that picture in your mind of the people watching on the Day of Atonement, the priest passing through, all the way through. So that could be just a, uh, a, a picture that the author's painting in their minds. And so he says, since we have a great high priest, not just a high priest, let us hold fast to our confession. And we've, you've talked about that before. We're going to talk about that again at the end. Continuing in 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you guys thought about that word um, in your homework, sympathize. And so I just wanted to just sit on that for a little bit and just what a comfort that is. So for the people, they knew that the high priest had all, he was not much different than them. He was called by God, but he sinned in the same way that they um, were prone to sin in their weakness. So that was a comfort to them, just knowing, okay, this person is um, able to sympathize with us. So if you would go and, and talk something through with a priest, right, they would be able to, a, a human priest would be able to emphasize, um, sympathize and empathize with you. I know you kind of thought through, like, what the difference between sympathizing and empathizing. But if you think how Jesus is able to sympathize or empathize with us, let's think through some of the um, human emotions that we go through on a regular uh, basis. I have a friend who um, will almost every hour announce, it's hot in here. Is it hot in here? <laughs> Those are, there's just some physical things that we, um, that we deal with. Can you imagine Jesus living in the desert and like actually being heat, going through heat exhaustion? Those are things. And altitude, altitude sickness. <laughs> he can sympathize. Yeah, what are, some of the other, what are some of the other human emotions that we go through that it's comforting to know that Jesus has he's gone through all that? Say it again. Grief, yes. That is a huge thing, to be able to walk with someone. Not, you might not have even the words to say, but you can sit with someone in their grief. How about just pure hunger? Does that make you angry <laughs> when you're hungry? I know it does for me. Uh, Jesus had all of that. What else? Does someone have another one? What's another emotion or like a physical thing that you go through that you're, that you're thinking, I'm glad Jesus went through all of that? Tiredness. Just plain tiredness, as a, as a young mom says. I always say, we could all be better parents if we weren't so darn tired. <laughs> Isn't that true, grandparents? Right? You get a good night's sleep, and you are great to play with the kids. And so in our tiredness, sometimes it's just the words come out wrong and what you what's really inside of you is is coming out in your tiredness 
Anything else that you can think of that you're glad Jesus can sympathize? Sorrow. Sorrow, yeah. Anger. Anger, yes. Frustration. Physical pain. Yep. Fear. Fear, yeah. All those things. Those are, go ahead. Yes, and I love that it says he learned obedience through suffering. That's something I'm going to challenge you to think a little bit more about through this week. He learned obedience through suffering. Yeah, being overwhelmed. All of us have been overwhelmed, and um, often, very often, when I'm overwhelmed, I don't make good choices. I don't know why that is. It's just so easy to take the easy road out, but God, um, Jesus, never did that. So it's great uh, that he can sympathize with us. Okay, so but let's look at um, in First Peter. It says now we are a royal priesthood. So what does that mean for you to be able to empathize with people who are smaller in your household and maybe a little ignorant in what they're doing? You can sympathize now with people in your life, like you said, as you sit with someone with grief. Since you have um, gone through all of those emotions, you also can um, just offer uh, what people need to them, as you can sympathize with them. As sons and daughters, we get to represent our Heavenly Father through all of that. The last part that I had on there is just uh, specifically what you'd said, too. When somebody else goes through a trauma, you can gather around with other people. That's the beauty of community. You can gather with people to celebrate and gather with people to walk them through in their deepest uh, trials. Our lifeline is always there. We just need to grab onto it and hold fast. So in 16, it goes on to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So that's another picture of heaven, the throne of grace, that we re may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So do you guys remember where the mercy seat was? Who can remember? It was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the... Holy of Holies. That's where you had to go to receive mercy. All the way in, past the veil. The veil was said to be four inches thick. I don't know how you would do that. Is it crochet? Is it, but I'm sure it's clearly, um, there's, pardon? Yeah. Well, how would you make it four inches thick? More and more layers. They there was no mistake that they didn't want anyone to accidentally have it, you know, be blowing in the wind. And yeah, that's fun to think about. How would you get a piece of cloth to be four inches thick? There, it, I did look that up, and it was like on poles. Yeah, that was up.
Just because of how it was woven. See, we should all go and heavy. Yeah. And the artistry that went into that. Okay, so so we're thinking about the um, the mercy seat. We're thinking about um, how we can, with confidence, draw near to that. So we're going to talk a little bit about about that at the end. But this, is, this confidence is opposed to the unbelief and the disobedience um, that they, we, I think it was last week that you talked about in the time of the rebellion, when they just thought, no, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. They didn't have confidence in what they thought. Um, their lack of confidence, was the opposite then was their sin of unbelief and disobedience. But we can, with confidence, draw near. So she's going to paint this picture. He or she, whoever our author is, is going to paint this picture just a little bit more uh, as we walk through here and think about you are able to go to the mercy seat and ask for grace from this amazing God. In Exodus 25:22, um, that's where God declares uh, of the mercy seat. That's where, uh, there I will meet you is what that says, Exodus 25, 22. But that was only reserved back in the day for uh, the priest. And so how amazing. We should just be overwhelmed that all the things that the priest had to do before to represent the people before God, with confidence now, you can draw near. So the next little section I thought was uh, interesting, 5 through, 5, 1 through... Um, Four, it just talks about the priest a little bit, so you've read that. And then 5 through 10 talks about um, what Jesus did. And I love when someone else makes it super clear for me. And so at the end of the bottom of your notes, there's a little, um, it's almost, it's a chart in a, in a way. It's called the chiastic structure. It's, um, it just is a, a way of explaining what the author is doing. So this is just another example of how this was um, an, a person who had an amazing uh, way to make an argument. So in 5, 1 through 4, it's talking about the old office of the high priest. As if that's, um, we're going to go A, B, C. The old office of the high priest and then the solidarity of the high priest uh, that he had with the people that he could empathize, sympathize with them. And then C, the humility that the high priest had. And then it's going to go back. The, in 5 through 10, it's a, uh, just a beautiful way to say, yes, Christ also was humble, and Christ also showed solidarity with the people and that he can empathize and sympathize. And then we're back to A, this is the new office of the high priest. So I didn't come up with that on my own. I just thought, that's such a great visual way to see that, because everybody learns in different ways. And so I thought... That's an argument that I would not have seen, but when someone lays it out for me, I'm like, that is genius. Uh, so just the other piece that I wanted to pull out of that section when we're talking about Jesus is that we'd said he learned, his faithful, he learned faithfulness and obedience. And so I know we can have a simple 
um, answer when I say, well, how did Jesus learn faithfulness and obedience? But I would love if that would be a question that you would answer throughout the week as you are learning to be faithful and obedient. You can ask yourself, was it like this? What did it, what did it feel like when Jesus had a, had a choice um, to be angry and not sin? Is that how he learned obedience? I just want you to think that through during the week. How did Jesus learn faithfulness and obedience? Sometimes we write down a quick answer and move on. But if that's something that you could meditate on this week, I think that would be a really great thing as you are coming up with coming against obstacles and um, pressures. And just say, Lord, was it like this? Was this how you learned faithfulness and obedience? And I think that will come um, out to you just in, really in a new way. Verse 10 talks about um, Melchizedek. And then verse 11 really makes me mad because we can't learn any more about Melchizedek because these people are too dull of hearing. So even we can't learn about what he has to say about Melchizedek. I thought, that's not fair. There isn't much that we know other than he was a king um, and a priest. We're going to, um, the author's going to circle back around to this, so we're going to come um, through uh, that again in a couple weeks. But just know there's not a whole lot that we know. Sometimes it is confusing. But I think if we can think in the category that he was a king also and a priest, that's why it's saying that Jesus was after um, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, the last section is just really interesting. Talks about just um, someone who's immature needing milk and not solid food. And that is such a great picture. You, those of you women that have had babies and you, you breastfeed for a while, but once you can give them that solid food, for me, it, my baby just slept so well. You could go much longer through the feedings, and it seemed like at that point, their, um, their health kind of, you know, they were able to just grow a little bit stronger, and they had, while the mama's milk is good stuff, just a little bit of cereal just seemed to sit really well with my kids. But let's think about, okay, what if you had a five-year-old and they're still drinking mama's milk? Just think about the physical characteristics that that five-year-old would have. They, it would be hard to, uh, for them to listen, right? They might not be as strong as, they, um, as another five-year-old that's had solid food. So if you can get that picture in your brain, you can think about how he's really describing these Christians. You need some more solid food. You need, um, you, you need something that's going to help ground you. And that's uh, what he's encouraging them to do. And he's going to make a few more arguments along the way. Solid food is for the mature. Uh, we end in 14. But those who have their powers of discernment trained, they are for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do we do that? How do we, um, what, what constant practices do we do to distinguish good from evil? Well, you're here. 
you're at Bible study. So this is a constant practice, right? You're just, you're, we're helping each one another to be discerning. What's something else that you do on a regular basis? Yep, that's how else would you know what God says? Right. It's a constant practice. You have to know what God says. Prayer. Prayer. You go constantly to the Father and talk things through. Yeah, that's, so the, this week I want you to talk through, like, how did Jesus learn obedience through suffering? Let that be something that you meditate on through prayer as you just go about your day. All right, we're going to close up. Uh, just by looking at um, one thing, one new thing that I learned, and um, then we're going to talk about this confidence that we have. So, the scripture always says that um, Jesus made one sacrifice, you know, for all eternity. But okay, so like I get that, I understand that, and because it was a perfect sacrifice, right? But in my mind, I was always like, yeah, but why? Why did that get to be one for all, for all time? Like, how come? Because as the priest had purified himself, he was um, in a state that where he could offer a pure offering. And as the offering that he would offer would be unblemished, like it was a, a pure, someone pure offering it and someone pu uh, a pure sacrifice. And so while on one level I understood it, I was like, yeah, but why? Why do we get to say it's one time and then done? And I learned this week, it's because uh, he is the perfect priest and then also offering the perfect sacrifice. So the, it was the, the part about the priesthood that I didn't really um, put all together. So as the priest would have to offer again and again for his own sin and for the others, that um, the barrier between him and the people and God got disrupted. But as Jesus, being the perfect priest, he um, offered the perfect sacrifice, that barrier can never be um, tainted again with sin. <laughs> Hebrews uh, 7, which we'll get to in a little bit, 7.16 says, he became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. So as the perfect priest, he's never going to be tainted by sin. And so then his offering in um, Hebrews 7.25, it talks, he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's still uh, making intercession for us. One, one offering, but we are able to go through Jesus to have this relationship with God. So I hope I explained that well. That was, a, that was a really cool thing that I got one of my questions answered on how that works. So let's look at what does it look like to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Because sin creates this barrier uh, where we can't, we can't um, come to God just on our own. The good news is the whole Bible is uh, a picture of how God is constantly drawing people back to himself. So if you think all the way back to Adam and Eve, um, when they sinned, God made a way through a sacrifice, and then he, he clothed them for them to be back in relationship with him. And then um, with Cain and Abel, um, he made a place for Cain to go where, he, uh, where no one would kill him so he could still continue to be in relationship with him. And then for 
Um, you can look all through the book of Genesis, but again with Noah, and he made a provision for this wicked generation um, to survive the destruction because God wants to be in relationship with you. And so God is constantly um, pursuing relationship, which I think is amazing. I mean, the God of the universe can do whatever he wants, and he could have said, well, I'm done with you. But he didn't. He loves to be in relationship with us. And so he um, provided a way. So we can be confident. I think sometimes as women, I hear more and more um, that they just they doubt themselves. And uh, I just want you to grab onto the scripture that you can be confident knowing that you're going to go to the Father and uh, you're going to receive mercy and you're going to receive grace. And we're going to uh, just have a little picture of that at the end. I want each of you just to picture what that looks like. So uh, Jesus has torn down the veil now, and he is, um, he is the mediator of this new covenant. So the covenant, uh, we all kind of know what a marriage covenant looks like. It just defines the relationship. Like, are you going to do this? Yes. Are you going to do this? Yes. Okay. So you agree to the, this is how we're going to do life. It's the same with, uh, with the covenant with God. Um, if you, uh, as I taught earlier this spring, if you look in the ancient Near East, how they, the steps that they had for a covenant, and if you look at a traditional, like, sinner's prayer, like, all those steps are in there, in that covenant-making process. And so, um, as you accept that by faith, if you accept um, God's provision for you to be able to be in a relationship uh, with the living God, you are still part of the story, of God's story. Think about that. So all the Bible's been written, and the, um, we're, we're not anything else, adding anything else to the Bible. But God's story is still ongoing. And so each of you has a part in how you are playing out your role. And so it, that's an interesting thing to think about. If you had something that was written about your life that was maybe you know, added on to the end of uh, scripture. You wouldn't want to add it, but you know what I'm saying. Like your part, what's your part? If it was written down, what would it be? Were you, have you been faithful? Have you grabbed hold with confidence everything that God has for you to grab hold of? So just as we close, I want to um, I want to just have you picture yourself uh, kind of walking up to the throne room. But some of you know that I coach track. And there's neuroscience out now that shows that you can practice something physically, like doing layups. You can practice doing that. But also, it's almost as effective in your brain if you sit down and imagine it. Your brain doesn't know the difference between you're actually doing it and, and yes, which is also very scary for when you think about memories. It doesn't help your body any. Like, you're not going to get any more fit by just imagining how fit you are. But, but the actual technical science of, um, I coach a hurdler, and she needs to do a three-step. And so she needs to just practice in her brain, one, two, three, one, two, three. And she's going to get it. I'm confident this is the year she's going to get it. But so we can also do that in our relationship with God. And so as we close, I want you to close your eyes 
And then uh, we're just going to imagine ourselves um, walking before uh, God in the throne room. So just think about that with confidence. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to worry that anything else is going to be happening to you. you. With confidence, you can walk to the throne room and you can see Jesus holding out mercy and grace to you. And if in your brain, look around and think, what else do you see? How can you picture yourself on a regular basis walking to the throne room and having God hold out mercy and grace to you as his child? You are a beloved daughter of the king if you have a faith relationship with God. Just think about, just for a minute, what would you say to him? God, we just want to thank you for Jesus, for all that he is. Father God, thank you for showing us our need for the Savior, for this high priest who was also our sacrifice. Thank you for giving us this beautiful narrative in Scripture of how you patiently and lovingly call us into relationship with yourself. Can you just teach us again how to approach boldly your throne room? God, teach us what pleases you. God, would you just meet us in our relationship with you in a new way, in a fresh way? God, would you help us to hold fast to our confession and give us confidence to be a light for you in the world this week? Amen.